I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast, brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, and I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong. Joining me today are... Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And today we'll be talking about Bhutan, a small landlocked Asian nation with one of the best flags you'll ever see. Bhutan is a country of less than 1 million people and bordered by the Tibetan region of China to the north and India pretty much everywhere else. It's the last of the Himalayan Buddhist kingdoms, which unlike Tibet and Sikkim, has retained its independence throughout its entire history. Also known as the country of the Drupka lineage, aka the Dragon People, or the Land of the Thunder Dragon, Bhutan is a strongly Buddhist country which has remained cut off from the outside world for most of its history. Since opening its borders to tourists in the 1970s, Bhutan has embraced democracy and now promotes the concept of gross national happiness, which is reflected in the Bhutan Gross National Happiness Index. Uh, Joe, do you want to walk us through some of the early history of Bhutan? Yes, so I'm going to start with a disclaimer like I often do. This was really hard to find anything out about. Um, because it's so isolationist, right? B- well, yeah, but also Bhutan's mostly been an oral culture. Most people were illiterate until the 50s, except the monks, uh, the Buddhist monks. And much of the kind of history they kept was rather um, mythical history rather than what we would consider modern history. So getting actual cold hard facts out of Bhutan's history has been a challenge for a lot of us. It's a lot of time. It's been pretty much an unknown, mysterious set of valleys up in the Himalayas. You got, you got to think about the landscape. These are big, steep mountains going up to about 7,000 meters in the north end of the country. And then in the south end of the country, it's kind of rolling hills. So there have been people there for a long time, but it only became a political entity um, in a relatively more modern era. So there's evidence of people being there maybe at least by 2000 BC. There's a wow. Neolithic tool that's been found, uh, particularly, um, I never know how to pronounce this word, adzes, you know, you know those things, oh, A-D-Z-E. Yeah. No yeah. idea. The things you find when you're in a Neolithic dig site. Um, huh. And they go back at least that far. They're not dissimilar to... S- tools you would find in other re- regions of India and China at the same time. Um, interestingly, they were, they're still found today quite often and they're considered to be, um, they're considered to be celestial weapons used by gods and demigods fighting each other. So they're actually kept by families in their houses as kind of a symbol of wealth, as a good luck charm. Uh, so there's this kind of mythical origin of these Stone Age tools, which means a lot of them probably been dug up a long time ago. Um, there's also evidence that there were elephants there, uh, along with people, um, and megaliths marking boundaries. So big standing stones, probably marking kind of boundaries between different tribal groups, but they're not marked with any kind of text. So 
we can't say much more than there were rocks. Um, In the beginning, a, there were rocks. There were rocks. <laughs> <laughs> so the the best book I could find on this is The History of Bhutan by Dr. Lopen Karma Funcho, which seems to be the most definitive historical book on Bhutan, and it is a whopper it's of a, a book. Beast. It's a beast. It's huge. Uh, basically, he's a monk slash Western trained historian who decided no one had done this yet. So he he did it. Um, and he apologizes for the lack of historical sources quite a lot at the start, which is nice. Uh, but he kind of teases around the ideas that there was definitely a flow of people from India into Bhutan. And how this happened isn't clear, but that definitely happened. Um, so you got kind of Indian ideas like like Buddhism and like the idea of demigods fighting in the sky and meteorites and bits of rock being the result of that. That's um, high drama. Kind of, yeah, it, that's, I mean, that's a very Indian uh, traditional story. So that, they reckon that comes from there. But you also had a flow of ideas from Tibet, uh, which was a big empire to the north and very important, um, kind of rivaled only by the Chinese and by the, the Arabs and the Mongols uh, in, in that region as a military power. But the first kind of historical events we start to see is, is in about 100 BC. The Tibetan prince Nyatri built a castle in Nyakar in East Bhutan. So there was Tibetan influence definitely that early. Um, and then in the 600s, we have the first kind of official stories of Buddhism being introduced. And uh, this comes again in the form of a Tibetan king this time called uh, Songsan Gampo, who is a very important king. I think he's... He's one of the three kings called the Dharma kings who were very important to Tibetan history. He lived about 627 to 649 and he built a temple in Bumtang in central Bhutan called Jampe Lak Kang. I just want to highlight that, that name, Joe, because it, it is great. Bumthang. That is the name. Move on. I don't think that's, on. That's, the, that's the, exactly the pronunciation, but it's definitely bum a spelling. Thang. It's definitely what it looks like. I'm uh, sitting on my I'm bum thang right now. More. Listen, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> also, there was another temple built in Paro in the, in the west, which is one of the important valleys. Um, then in the 700s, we get this fascinating character who's part legend, part history, called Padma Sambhava, or uh, Guru Rinpoche, which means the, I think, the beloved teacher, um, or the precious teacher. And he's known as the second Buddha in Bhutan. He's kind of their patron saint. He was this Buddhist missionary. He apparently arrived in Bhutan on the back of a flying tigress who was a, a, a particular emanation of his wife. That's a way to make an entrance. <laughs> it, 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 and he brought this defining form of kind of tantric Buddhism to, uh, to this region. As, 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 an important unedu- as an uneducated Westerner, I just assume tantric means sexy stuff. I, I, don't, I don't know. I assume it has a far so, more more sensitive and and otherwise representation, but uh, sexy sexy stuff. I think I think it includes sexy Ooh. stuff, but is 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 it's all about um, actions leading to enlightenment kind of thing. I, I I can't really get my head around Buddhism. My my Buddhist teaching and and knowledge is so poor. My bum thang is very this excited about this. This has been a wonderful. Uh, <laughs> country to study but like I, I can't figure out what tantra means it's definitely bigger than what it means in in the you know in the west yeah. anyway it's not it's not just um, sting doing it for hours it's, that's, that's it's not just <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway so the the 
Padma Sampava left behind all these pilgrimage sites, including a stunning one, which is called Paro Taktang, the tiger's nest. And he meditated in a cave there. And much later, they built this monastery hanging off the side of a 900 meter cliff. And it just, it looks like it shouldn't be there. It's the most beautiful monastery. And we'll put a picture of it in the show notes, but like it's, it's fascinating and draws a lot of tourism today. But he meditated in a cave there for three years, three months, three weeks, three days and three hours. So it was an important holy site. And I think it was there he left an imprint of his body in a rock. Maybe that's not historical. Um, And there's this wonderful idea in this form of Buddhism about leaving treasures hidden for future people to discover. So he apparently left all these treasures, which later teachers found in caves and revealed to their disciples. Joe, do you think that's that's related to what you were describing earlier with the Stone Age tools and so on being kept as relics, that they're like treasures to be found later on, that that whole thing? Yeah, yeah, maybe. But in this case, the treasures are usually text form. Okay. So the idea is that this guru left a text that was, it was too soon, you know, needed to be discovered at a later date. Um, wow. And so there's, there's a whole tradition of tertons, which are people who go searching for these treasures and finding them and forming schools of Buddhism around them. In 780, or 746, an exiled Indian king, uh, Sinduraja, established a government in Bumtang and he pr- propagated Buddhism as a kind of a, a more official religion and started... Bhutan becoming a, a country, you could say. Um, but not, not a lot is known about him. What is known is that in Tibet at this time, the Kagyu school of Buddhism uh, was founded by, uh, by three main characters, Marpa, Milarepa and Gampopa. And it gained huge popularity in the Himalaya Buddhist world. So in Tibet, in, in what is now Bhutan and Sikkim and various parts of what's now India. Um, and they were really respected for having centuries of an unbroken line of transmission of really esoteric and hermetic sort of practices. Uh, so these guys became exceptionally powerful. Uh, in the 1100s, the Lapa sub-school of Kagyu Buddhism gained influence in the Paro and Thimpu regions of Bhutan. So it became the go-to religion, the go-to form of Buddhism for people living in those valleys. Um, and then... In 1193, the Drukpa lineage is founded. So this this is important to the history of Bhutan because this is now the state religion there. Um, So a a guy called Sangpa Gyari was in a valley south of Lhasa in Tibet and he had this um, pilgrimage where he saw nine dragons roaring out of the earth and into the sky and there was flowers falling from the sky. And so he picked the name Drukpa, which means dragon people as the name of his group. He moved to the Ralung Monastery, which is very near to Western Bhutan, and set up a hereditary, a, a line of abbots who were both hereditary, but sometimes also reincarnations of him. So you get this complicated dual source of, uh, of inheritance in the Drukpa school. So the, the Drukpa spread really far, really quick. It was an exceptionally popular version of Buddhism. Because it has dragons. <laughs> because it has dragons. And dragons are boss. They yeah. are cool. But the, the the story of why it spread so far was that he, he um, that Sangpa Garye was sitting with three of his fellow disciples of their teacher. And they were offered to choose between a drum, a conch shell and a bell that would kind of prophesy their successes as gurus. And the first one chose the drum and his teacher said, 
your teachings will be heard as far as the drum is heard, uh, which isn't that far. The second one chose the conch shell and blew it, and the teacher said, oh, your teachings will spread as far as the sound of that conch shell. And then um, Tsangpa Gyare chose the bell, and he tied it around the neck of a startled vulture, and the vulture freaked out and flew for 18 days without sleeping <laughs> until it got tired. Uh, and this is how far... So there's this, this story that the teachings of the Drukpa spread as far as a, a vulture could fly in 18 days, which included... What is now Bhutan? That and that piece of uh, animal abuse is uh, brought to you by <laughs> Joe Byrne. <laughs> wow! So, um, as far as the it's an interesting flies. story. Yeah, I, I think it, I think the story is meant to tell us is that he was the cleverest one. I yeah. assume, um, and also dragons are awesome. I, I was kind of listening yes. to this and thinking, like, wait, we're 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 were drums really crap back then? Was it just like? You're, everyone was hitting drums with like a feather like oh man this drum <laughs> this this ain't gonna be heard and the, drums are made of wood or something like yeah yeah no the, yeah. the, the vulture adds a new angle I, I welcome this it device. does it's, it's kind of an unexpected tangent <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in the 1200s the Drogba lineage the, their llamas begin to fight for control of what would become Bhutan um, and they come to ascendancy by about the 1500s and kick out the previous schools so they're kind of the the mainstream form of Buddhism at this stage. And there's one particular saint of Drukpa Buddhism that I think Mark will love. He lived from about 1455 to 1530. And he's kind of a secondary patron saint of Bhutan now. His name is Drukpa Kunli. And he was a divine madman. Sweet. Which was a, a, a style of religious practice that was popular at the time. Uh, kind of what happened? That, that's kind of gone now. You, don't, you never see holy mad people anymore. Uh, oh no! Not so sure about Wait. that, uh, Joe. Yeah, actually, go, go to the unconfused. American South. You'll meet you'll meet two or three. <laughs> so he um, he had an interesting lifestyle. He he didn't approve of hypocrisy. He thought rituals were a bit pointless. He didn't like the orthodoxy. Um, he was an itinerant poet and kind of satirist, not your average monk. And uh, he was a big fan of lewd comments, mm. um, singing bawdy songs, Sweet. drinking heavily. Uh, promiscuity, uh, all in the name of enlightenment. Mm. Uh, he thought that you could break through social barriers by... With your dong. Um, funny you should say that. <laughs> oh, yes. So he... There are many stories about him wielding a flaming thunderbolt... Yes! ...in order to, to beat demons and natural forces into submission. And this is almost certainly a euphemism. Uh, to, to this day... Bhutanese people who are, are proponents of Drukpa Kunli have phallic sculptures around their houses to ward away uh, demons and such like. Um, just on this, I, I work with this guy from, from Nepal and I was asking him, you know, because Nepal is very close to, to Bhutan, whether he had any you know, interesting trivia or whatever. He's like, yeah, they got a place with loads of penises. <laughs> like, all right, cheers. That's basically all he had for me, but... Yeah, no, and, and they do. That, that's that's a yeah. thing. Uh, and he, he like, I got that off someone on Facebook, and I looked for information. So I went, yeah, the place with all the fallacies. Like, so this is a, a defining feature of, like, not to belittle Bhutanese Buddhism because I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but definitely a noteworthy aspect is the propensity to have the male phallus featured in your religious art, which isn't such a thing in Western Christianity, for instance. You make um, it sound so alien, Joe. The male phallus. <laughs> <laughs> I feel there's a bit of redundancy in there somewhere. 
The female trying fathers? Be... Nah. Trying to be a bit academic oh. here, you know? Uh, so anyway, that... that um, I, I'm going to give you a nice segue here, Mark. His grandson... Oh. Um, was uh, a host to the next important figure in, in Bhutanese history uh, when when he fled from Tibet. So uh, maybe you want to tell us about who that important figure who stayed with with the Flaming Thunderbolt guy's grandson Yeah, so was. this guy, top guy. Really, like, as much as the story of Bhutan... Are you going for a Trump style here? <laughs> Best guy. Best guy. 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 Terrific guy. Huge. Really great guy. <laughs> Huge with no H. Huge. This guy is terrific. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm hearing I'm hearing from the internet. This guy is terrific. Um, yeah. So as much as maybe the story of Bhutan starts, you know, thousands of years ago, uh, Bhutan. It doesn't really. Bhutan is like a unified concept as a kingdom. Really begins with the story of this guy, and he he grew up in this this uh, this Drupka monastery. He was uh, both of direct uh, lineage of these these leaders, these abbots, but also was kind of given the, the honor of being recognized as a reincarnation. So in both regards was seen to be the next, uh, next inheritor. Now, seemingly, I guess it's not dissimilar when, uh, when uh, a new prince ascends to the throne as a king, that their claim to the throne, if you've ever seen Game of Thrones, can, uh, can be you know, questioned. And this was the case here. There was a powerful, powerful grouping within the monastery who proposed somebody else to be the next abbot, to be the next uh, uh, reincarnation. And and this is the awkward thing about reincarnation. Yeah. It's like, it's pretty clear if you're not someone's son. Yeah. Uh, not 100%, but like, it's harder to... Um, Engineer, we just gonna go. No, this guy, he's definitely got the spirit of the previous abbot. Yeah. Look, it's like who recognizes it, and you're kind of relying on on the priests and so on, and uh, it's it's very it's, much a he said, she said kind of. It's situation. swayable, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's also nice, nicely uh, malleable, though. If if you know if the wrong guy is bo- is born to the abbot, then maybe you can. Yeah. You know, and just important to say that like Buddhist monks aren't all celibate, which I didn't know until I started researching this. So there's kind of lesser vows a lot of them take and they have a kid to be their heir and then they take more intense vows. So uh, that was news to me. So he stays at the monastery because he's still, you know, he's still the the son of the previous abbot. Um, But there is this kind of conflict there where there is arguably a usurper of of his uh, who's been chosen above him. Now, when he's around 22, 23, uh, there is a inverted commas misunderstanding uh, with some of the, the, the local higher ups and they attempt to arrest him in uh, 1616. So yeah, he has the vision that he wouldn't like to be arrested and killed. Uh, and so he's scarpers and he leaves, uh, he leaves the monastery and he goes to what is now Bhutan. And he's a very learned scholar. So he's traveling around, he gets a, a following um, and he's starting to build a sort of, a, I guess, a political presence as well as a, a spiritual one. And, and his, his following grows in Bhutan. So he gradually starts uh, sidelining his rivals in Bhutan. Uh, and he builds what is called Simtoka, which was the first Zong. Now, if you look up images of Bhutan today, you're going to see lots of these amazing almost militaristic looking fortress mm. castles and they're zongs and this was the first one he was the first one to build and um so he starts building this zong 
And this led to the Battle of the Five Llamas, as in great name. Yeah, not not like South American goats, but like the Dalai Lama <laughs> kind of llama. You know, one L, one L. I really want to see um, that movie of the Battle of the Five <laughs> Llamas with two L's. That would be great. <laughs> so anyway, he, he's building this fortress. It arouses the uh, suspicion and the kind of fears of of local chieftains and rivals and so on, and. Basically, they invade, they fight against him. He's able to put up somewhat of a defense, but he basically retreats. And again, in a not totally dissimilar to Game of Thrones when I was reading this, they invaded Simtoka, his new fortress, which was only half built. And somehow the gunpowder stores ignited and the whole thing blew up, killing most of his enemies. Uh, And he was just kind of like, I guess watching I won. this from... Yeah, basically. Uh, did it, I guess? Uh, and he charges back in, realizing that, you know, this is his moment to strike. Uh, and he starts rebuilding Simtoka, starts rebuilding the, the fortress. And subsequently then, uh, there's another attempted invasion. But this one, he, he's now, uh, he's more fortified, he's more more secure, and he's able to, to push it back. So... He's constantly getting uh, invasions from... I, I have here, Mark, that Tibet tried to invade in 1627, 1629, 1631, 1643 with added Mongols. 1647. <laughs> now and, added Mongols. <laughs> because the, the, the Mughal Empire is kind of becoming very powerful at this point and t- uh, putting control over Tibet at this point. So, But like it seems like every, every other summer there was... Just that that's kind of what like looking at, at Bhutanese history, there's a lot of that. It's like yeah. it's it's a constant level of conflict and invasions, not just now, but in, in subsequent centuries as well that we'll talk about. It there's just a low level of constant uh conflict. But somehow the the country Well if you've got some to, good songs in the right places at the you know, at the entrance to a valley or whatever. Yeah. At the crossing of a river. A, Apparently, they're very effective military tools. It, it does seem to be a Himalayan Switzerland. Uh, yeah, and, and if you look at it, and uh, I do live in Switzerland now, so it looks the same. Yeah, it's like, valleys it, between mountains. The architecture is different, but like it, it is a very similar climate. And I'll It's come also back the same size as Switzerland. Mm. It's uh, the closest country to it in terms of size. Um, but it, you kind of don't think of the Himalayas as being like the Alps, but at this level, yeah, they kind of are. Uh, so... I'll, I'll come back to it later, but there are some, some links between the Swiss and, and the, the Bhutanese in the modern day. So, so just some other things around this time. Uh, there was a visit from uh, Portuguese monks who were based mm. in, uh, in Western India in the city of Cochin, which I can actually say I've, I've been to a couple of years ago. Uh, it's quite nice. Um, and because of the Portuguese influence, there was a lot of uh, Christian monasteries. And they traveled up through India and into Bhutan. And they met with, uh, uh, I actually haven't really mentioned his name, uh, Jabdrang Rinpoche. Uh, and I think, Joe, you mentioned Rinpoche earlier as well. So again, it means... I think it know, means uh, precious or something. So sh- yeah. uh, Jabdrang is like one you bow before the feet of. Yeah. So it's, it's a title. It's not, his name was was it was something. A, it was... Uh, Yawang Namgyal. Yeah. Uh, but Jabdrung is a bit more, you know, fist and palm. Of, it's a bit That's cooler. the official title, and that's the. He would be reincarnated up to the current day. So. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, these, these Portuguese monks visited and they gave him gifts of a, a telescope, uh, gunpowder. Um, but uh, they also 
took down what he spoke about. And, and Zhabdrung talked about a kingdom to the north called Shambhala, which was this great and very rich kingdom. Um, and he said it was beside Mongolia, but it wasn't really China. Uh, some people have thought he meant Tibet, but uh, most people now think, it, think of it as a sort of a, a legendary mystical kingdom like uh, El Dorado or like uh, uh, Atlantis. Uh, that it, it didn't really exist. It was almost more more is, valuable as a concept. Is this where Shangri-La comes from? Exactly, exactly. Oh. So Shambhala was then incorporated into, I think it was a, was it a, a book in 1932? Um, yeah, there was definitely a novel about it. That, and, yeah, and, yeah. So, and some, Bhutan is called the last Shangri-La nowadays. Yeah. So. But uh, that's where the whole legend comes from, from, the, from this visit, visit from two Portuguese, uh, two Portuguese monks. So... Anyway, uh, Zhabdrung pulls the whole country together. He, he subdues his enemies. Uh, Bhutan is, is, is now an actual concept. And he also installs a, a unique form of, of ruling where there's two heads of the state. There's the, the head abbot, the, the head of the church, and then there's the kind of the executive. Uh, the terms being Drukdesi, being the, the prime minister, the president, and then the Je Kenpo, being the head priest. Um, the importance of Zhabdrang was so great that uh, they didn't admit he died because they were worried about about uh, how people would then view the strength of the, the cohesion of Bhutan because it was so tied up in this guy's personality and his teachings. So, so he'd gone into religious retreat, wasn't that? The... Yeah, they said he, he'd gone for a long walk to think things over, basically, for 54 years. Oh they didn't admit God. the man was dead. And then, as you as you mentioned, Joe, they they kind of needed to keep his his name and his, the concept of mm. him alive by saying, "Well, you know, he's reincarnated in in this person." So there was subsequent Jabdrungs, Jabdrung Rinpoches in in subsequent uh, in subsequent generations. But, but, but he was he was the guy. He was the person who started all. Of that. Uh, an an interesting feature of the 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 long dead leader is that the in Tibet the Gelug school had now come to prominence because the, the Mongols liked them. And that's the, the school the Dalai Lama comes from. Mm. And hilariously, the fifth Dalai Lama uh, was also dead at this time and secretly dead and not reincarnated. So I was listening to the, the Reddit Ask Historians podcast about this. Yeah, and they're going, so for 30 years, the two highest kingdoms in the world were ruled by necrocracies, is what the, the guys in the podcast said. Wow. Ruled by dead men, basically. And, and there was some Tibetan general kind of saying, wow. I refuse to believe this, this country is ruled by a 120-year-old abbot who only eats bananas and honey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I wasn't Let born yesterday. Let me see him. I want to see him. Fair oh, enough. no, he's having a praise. Yeah. So, he's having a nap uh, right now. Subsequently to this, um, they did struggle with maintaining the cohesion of the state. There was quite fluid borders uh, due to ongoing conflict with uh, uh, Tibet-owned areas. You build a wall. Of, uh, pardon? Nothing. Okay. Uh, Tibet-owned areas of uh, modern-day India um, and, and and Chinese Tibet today. Between 1729 and 1730, there was three separate Tibetan invasions. To give you a flavor of that. Um, also in 1772, the British turn up. Uh, they, through the uh, East India Company, were colonizing uh, India. And, uh, and pretty much everywhere else. And everywhere else. But they, they had a specific center called Kuch Behar, uh, which uh, sent uh, missions to, to Bhutan, uh, very, very close by. And Mark, I assume like every other time the British turn up on one of these podcasts, they 
invaded, killed all the local people and gave everyone smallpox, right? Um, I mean, they tried to. We were kind of discussing this earlier where, like, the, how Bhutan claims to have been in, independent for its its entire history. But the, the British did turn up and they, they tried to have a treaty with, um, uh, with Bhutan and Bhutan weren't really up for it. So they decided to invade them a bit and then there was a treaty. Um, and then for the next 133 years... It's just a succession of treaties, border skirmishes, uh, failed peace missions, uh, and even a small war in 1864 for about five months. But there's really not... It doesn't really develop in any significant way. No, they're just just constantly, you know... They're fighty and they are clever. Yeah. They, they, They don't... The British never the, really get a, a, a foothold in the way that they no. totally did in, in India and so many other places. Like, the, Bhutan was kind of going from adversarial to apologetic, but never totally gave up being Bhutan. It and still the, the, was they were never, the, they were never the too Empire. proud to sign a treaty and agree to cede a little bit of land in order f- to be protected. Or th- That was probably part of why they managed to stay in the game. Yeah, and you're right, they had very fluid borders. They were giving up little pockets of land here, accepting little pockets of land there, uh, depending on, you know, how the military outcome of different skirmishes and so on. But uh, there was, for all that entire time, a, a core that was Bhutan. Um, so we, that brings us up to... We, we should mention that in, in 1827, there was a oh. fire ripped through the capital of Panaka. And a lot of the detailed records of this period don't exist anymore. Which has um, made researching this podcast much easier. Quicker, anyway, quicker yeah, than usual. Quick, quicker, yeah. Uh, yeah. But harder in some ways, because you, yes. you kind of go, and then what happened? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> something, something, something. It got and burnt. Another, you know, a shab drone came along. Yeah. Uh, um, I think this is an appropriate point probably for a break. We probably should have taken one already, but uh, we can jump out for a quick break here, and we'll be back just after this. So where does that bring us up to, Mark? Um, well, after 133 years of tiny skirmishes and miniature civil wars, uh, it brings us up to about early 20th century, believe it or not. So 1905, 1907, thereabouts. All right. Yeah, and uh, this is where one of the most prominent figures in Bhutanese history emerges, uh, Ong Yim Wangchuk. Uh, Wangchuk is going to be a very, uh, very prominent name going forward. Uh, this guy, I like to think of him as the Jon Snow of this story. Uh, he he was uh, apprentice. Is he a powder? Uh, he's uh, he's a guy who uh, who has a troubled upbringing, but uh, gets yeah, things done. To, yeah, spoilers for Game of Thrones. He managed to uh, managed to bring a lot of people together. Uh, he was born in 1826, uh, an apprentice at the court of Yingmei Namyal in the art of leadership and warfare, and as he was sort of born in a time of war uh he was kind of trained in you know the martial arts and wartime uh war stuff exactly i, th- I think namyal was was kind of the de facto ruler of about half of bhutan at that i think point. so yeah yeah uh, he's and a, possibly his dad i'm not sure about that 
it wasn't it wasn't entirely clear, but he's uh, he's yeah. very, he's a very influential figure in his life. Mm. They had governorships of Bhutan uh, under uh, under Jabdrang. He established that that there were I think there were Panlops with yeah, yeah. the governors. Yes, and they they so they each had like a third of the country. So his that was probably the yeah, role he was one that of that them, but had. he was definitely the the, the top Panlop. Top pan. There wasn't meant to be one, but he was <laughs> Panta. So. Uh, Wang Chuk uh, emerges from sort of this these various uh, skirmishes and civil wars that you were talking about, Mark, and is leading men into the ba- into battle at the age of seventeen. Uh, so he's a very young battle commander. He's got one of those fire thunder dongs you're talking about earlier. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, wielding his uh, thunder staff. Uh, his father died when he was twenty one, leaving him to care for his family uh, and. Yeah, he became an extremely devout Buddhist and a very renowned warrior. Which doesn't seem like a good combination to me. I mean, he's, he's like, got a tragic backstory, but uh, kind of... No, I, yeah. I just feel like our understanding of Buddhism has been poorly communicated. Like, you, you can be a warrior king and a Buddhist, apparently. Yeah. It, it, it's a little less, you know, peace and love, John Lennon stuff, and yeah. a bit more stab, twist, kill. It's more just, just like people <laughs> everywhere, you know. <laughs> They're not yeah. magical, so, happy folk. So in 1885, he essentially brings the country together. He sort of unifies the country under his own rule. Uh, he's not officially kind of elected as, uh, you know, officially recognized as a leader until 1904 or 1907. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1904, he travels to Tibet in an official capacity to act as a mediator between uh, Britain and Tibet uh, because Britain had installed forces there uh, in a... Uh, quite a forcible manner, I guess. Uh, Tibet were not too happy, but they were. And Wang Chuk decided the best way to not have that happen to me is help them do it to them. Exactly. <laughs> he so, was, I believe, uh, knighted for the for the help. He was indeed, yeah. So uh, yeah, that was in 1904. He uh, Britain had installed uh, troops there to counter any Russian advances into East Asia. Basically, they were just sort of worried about the the Russians getting a foothold in uh, East Asia or in China. So. They're like, we're going to go there first. And that's what they did. In 1907, then uh, there's an established Buddhist monarchy in uh, Bhutan. And Ongyen Wangchuk becomes the first dragon king of Bhutan and is crowned with a raven crown, which I think is awesome. Is a, is, is a symbol from, the, from that old tradition. I think the raven is one of the protector gods of the kingdom. Not, not made from actual ravens, as far as I know. No. Remember as a kid, I knew nothing about Bhutan except the flag was deadly and they had a dragon king. And like, yeah. I didn't need to know anymore. It was, that was all. But I, I always assumed it was an ancient monarchy. This is just over 100 years old. Yep. So there's, and, only, yeah, there's what, only been, spoiler alert, five dragon kings so far. Uh, this guy is the first. What's really cool is that the coronation was attended by and photographed by John Claude White, who was uh, some kind of sub-governor in the... Sikkim region of India and he was on that mission to Tibet as well so that they were friends and he invited them to the coronation so there's these stunning photos in National Geographic of you know the coronation and the ceremonies and the, the songs and all this stuff black and white but spectacular um, which I'd recommend having a look at yeah we'll definitely include a link to those in the in the show notes so uh, in 1910 he signs the Treaty of uh Pungaka with uh, Britain. Well done, uh, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> in, 
And uh, that's an update to a previous treaty that uh, Bhutan had signed with, uh, with Britain and provided that uh, British India wouldn't interfere with the internal relations of, of Bhutan as long as Bhutan accepted Britain's advice on external relations, basically. So Britain is sort of like, as long as you follow foreign policy that we dictate to you, then you can do whatever you want. And uh, In, in yeah, your it, little valleys. <laughs> exactly. And it, it just it reestablishes a formal relationship between uh, Britain and Bhutan, British India particularly, and just kind of protects Bhutan from any incursion from China or Russia or any larger powers who at the time wouldn't really dare to, to challenge Britain's authority in the area, I guess. Uh, 1926 then, uh, First Dragon King dies and his son uh, Yingmei Wangchuk, who was named after... Uh, his father's mentor, he inherits the throne. His rule is pretty peaceful, but uh, they maintain this Pretty peaceful of, suggests not entirely peaceful. Uh, not entirely peaceful, but... Uh, it, it, yeah, Not entirely peaceful for one or two particular people, anyway. <laughs> one or two particular people, yeah. The policy of isolationism, which we touched on at the start of the podcast, remains in place. So this is still very much at the point where Bhutan is... Um, is kind of sealed off from the outside world. It's only real diplomatic relations are with British India. Uh, but the policy of uh, modernization kind of starts at this time to where the government tries to bring the country kind of, kind of dr- tries to bring infrastructure and roads and that sort of thing up to like modern standards uh, while remaining kind of isolationists and not really kind of interacting with its neighbors or any other larger powers apart from Britain. And then in 1947... India gains its independence from Britain and Bhutan is given the opportunity to join the new Indian state uh, and it declines. Now, it's possible that India might have been, might have kind of forced the issue slightly had they been in conflict with China, which they would be later on. But the new Indian government recognizes Bhutan as an independent country in 1947 and basically takes over the role that Britain had previously occupied as kind of a protector of Bhutan. Uh, A couple of years later, they sign a treaty of friendship between the government of India and government of Bhutan. That's nice. Which, uh, yeah, treaty of friendship sounds great, right? Uh, So, yeah. Could I I just mention one thing that happened in this period since we're talking about India? You go for it, Joe. so the, the Wang Chucks have basically made the whole Zhabdrung line irrelevant. Uh, and in 1931, a young reincarnated Zhabdrung decided to go to the Indians for help. He, he actually reached out to Gandhi, of all people, to help him take over Bhutan again. And by all accounts, the, the plot was discovered. He was uh, retired to a monastery and died in suspicious circumstances. Um, ah, this is one of the it's kind of an open, talking about. It's an open secret that he was probably strangled to death with some of the white silk scarves that Bhutanese like to wear, which is kind of messed up. That's fitting. So that, that, that's a thing that almost certainly happened as a kind of an underscore to all the nice modernization. You know, there, there's real politic going on as well. And there was of another course. assassination in the 50s, I think. Uh, the prime minister. I, I don't know if he was the prime minister at the time. He certainly was. He was the first official prime minister of uh, of Bhutan. He um, was. And he, he was, was killed. He was uh, assassinated in not so suspicious circumstances. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was very obvious. Yeah. We, um, yeah. That's. Yeah. That takes us up to about the 1950s. So, mm. um, just to note that in 1951, China takes over Tibet. 
which is still which has had strong cultural links with with Bhutan yeah, forever. Exactly, and Bhutan so closes border uh, with Tibet and sides with India against China, which is you know a kind of a ongoing situation right now. Yeah. Uh, since then, so yeah, uh, in fifty two, then King Yingmei Wangchuk dies, uh, and his son, the third Dragon King, takes over it. He's uh, Yingmei Dorji Wangchuk. I think at this point, this is where kind of the, the the murmurings of democracy start to come in. Uh, this will become like a big thing in sort of the, the second half of the 20th century where mm. uh, Bhutan kind of decides that it's going to get more, it's going to become more democratic and sort of move away from monarchy. Well, one uh, place I read kind of pointed out that communism was kind of an attractive idea to Bhutanese peasant farmers. Because they were poor, working poor land they didn't own, yeah. all that kind of thing. So there was an element of trying to counteract the appeal of communism by by providing a more modern country to the people. Like the um, Jigme Dorji Wangchuk did land reform. He abolished serfdom. You know, gave people ownership of the land they worked on. Like abolish slavery, and this is quite late slavery, to be abolishing slavery. Yeah. Oh my god, this still that's, a, that's a big thing. God. So um, this is this is one of my one of my big notes for this period is yeah. Like you kind of go through the timeline of history and you go 1958 abolished slavery. Good, hang like, on, what? <laughs> almost 19, 1960 before they abolished slavery. So oh, yeah, man. again, this this place that they think of as or they, but they were still doing like their idyllic, own thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh. but but setting up setting up the They're, cabinet and setting up the the kind of early form of parliament is probably I think it's all part of that process of going okay you like you like rights okay we can give you some <laughs> we can give you we can give you some rights uh, provided I'm still the king uh, but they they do love yeah. the kings so, so they're king they do they do but it's important to note that this is not like this this was not Shangri-La you know, actual slavery like this was this yeah this was people this was people being owned by other people and you know, sex slavery was very common for women, and uh, a lot of slaves were put to work in forestry and farming and that sort of stuff. Like it's it's not uh, it's not pretty, and it's it's kind of a I think it's kind of a black mark on the country that it took them up until almost 1960 to abolish slavery, um, or to even think about it. But yeah, that makes South Carolina look pretty pretty. Exactly, uh... <laughs> it does. It does. So yeah, during this time, uh, a lot of the links between India and Bhutan are strengthened. Uh, modern roads are built between India and Bhutan. Like they're just best buddies at this point. Uh, Double B. And in nineteen, 19- yeah. And in nineteen sixty-four, this is the, what you were talking about earlier, Mark. Uh, tensions kind of arose due to the modernization effects, uh, decreasing relations. They were kind of dismantling the relationship between church and state, yeah. and. A lot of people saw the influence of India as too great within Bhutan. And this is when the first prime minister, uh, Yingmei Palden Dorji, is assassinated by, well, by, a, a, I think it's a number of people, but the king's uncle was one of the people that was uh, involved and was subsequently executed for his role in what was an attempted coup against uh, the, the government at the time. So again, not not all entirely rosy, I guess, in uh, Bhutan at the time. This is all the, the already kind of tensions are rising as Bhutan kind of moves towards modernism. Yeah, uh, absolute monarchy would do so that. I think at that it. point he, he king abolished the prime ministership for about twenty years. Uh, I think he did because yeah, it was yeah, just too much trouble. Like this is not worth. 
yeah, this is not worth it. But, but through yeah. the 60s, so. Bhutan starts opening up. They join the UN. They join the post Universal Postal Union. They uh, they join kind of <laughs> that that benchmark of international progress. The, there's I an mean, international postal union. Uh, apparently, you can't get post otherwise. All right. I mean, like, fair enough. Wow. You know, it's important. That's new info. Uh, Timpu becomes the capital in the sixties, and then in seventy two, we get a new king, Jigme Singye Wangchuk. They're running out of names. The fourth Dragon King, and he's seventeen years old. And uh, this guy. This guy kind of ruled up until he's still alive. I think I think this guy, if it's the guy I'm thinking of, he looks like a Korean gangster. He looks so cool. He looks like sexy Asian Elvis. He is he is so I think cool. I think that's his son you're thinking of. I think uh, I think I've seen a few of them and okay. they they ha- the family has a pretty they're, they're they, a they, they they rank well in the in the attractive world leaders. They're a handsome family. Oh yeah. yeah. They may be the most handsome royal family. You know, Not much in, competition in the world, I would say. Uh. <laughs> all, all, all the inbred trolls in Europe, in their in their castles in Liechtenstein, trying to trying to eat their dinner with their five thumbs. But uh, freakos. The, the fourth king was a, a big fan of d- democracy. He moved his responsibilities to the cabinet. He allowed the cabinet to impeach him. Yeah, he he mm. basically just dismantled the monarchy uh, systematically. Uh, throughout the sort of second half of the 20th century, but there's a there's a key a key point here which I know we want to spend some time on is in 1988, uh, Bhutan conducts oh, yeah. its first national census, and as a result, many people uh, who are ad- identified as uh, belonging to the Lhotshampa uh, Hindu minority, origin. yeah, Nepalese descent, are yeah. branded as illegal immigrants into Bhutan, and they make up. Estimates say they make up about thirty yeah. to thirty-five percent of the oh. population. So that's I, I've that's heard a, that's also a lot of people a sixth. So obviously it's a range. So it's a sixth to a third. Of the no, population. Um, a sixth. Yeah. Left. Oh. Before okay. so when they took oh, the census, a third of the population were Nepali-speaking Hindus in the south of Bhutan, um, and yeah, after the census. The central government clearly decided this was a problem, and they wanted to be one nation, one people, yeah. everyone to be Drukpa Buddhist, to wear the traditional clothing, the go for the men and the kira for the women, which you will recognise when you see it. Mm. Uh, very distinctive kind of Himalayan clothing. Um, they started closing Hindu seminaries. Closing Hindu seminaries. Uh, they they, uh, they ceased to in instruct uh, kids in uh, Nepali in schools so mm-hmm. they they kind of which they have been doing happily up to that point yeah. they were free primary education since the 50s actually. yeah there, there's this weird so um, this is not the first time we've seen this kind of thing uh no where a place is so small and surrounded on on every side by so many uh, uh huge uh, almost kind of enveloping cultures they feel under pressure to maintain what they have and I, as far as i know from from researching Zhabdrang the founder of the country was was aware of this from the very start and he created all of these you know traditions anew so that that Bhutanese people would have uh, things that were their own so the the dress and uh, some of their traditions in dancing and music he tried to create a, a, a solely Bhutanese culture that they could kind of uh, a totem that they could gather around mm. and you know that sounds well and good, as distinct from other yeah, yeah it, Himalayan like, cultures, so I guess. 
diversity not a big priority. In fact, almost they, they fear it because diversity means often they're huge neighbors who at all times potentially could just swallow them up with their exactly. critical mass. But the, but the result was what you could definitely class as a genocide, not, not in terms of killing people per se, but there was rounding up of people. A- ethnic cleansing, certainly. Ethnic cleansing. Ethnic yeah. cleansing is definitely the term that's People been were definitely used, arrested, yeah. made feel unwelcome, threatened, property damaged, uh, yeah. assaulted. They were raped. essentially evicted from the country. Um, and you end up with a, about a, at least 100,000 people, about a sixth of the population, leaving the country and going to refugee camps in India. And oh, but about. the government says only 5,000 people, Joe. That's what the government yes. says. Only about 5,000. Government good, what, says government uh, survey. That's not what the Lord Champa say. Yeah. yeah. Many of these have been resettled in the US and other places. Um, the UK, I think Denmark yeah. also, Australia. There's, there's Norway, <laughs> Australia, Canada. It, it seems that basically the yeah. UN had these camps in, in Nepal where mm. these people who you know, were really more Bhutanese than they were Nepali, but had, you know, aspects of Nepalese culture. Well, so, some of them had been Nepali 100 years previous. Yeah, yeah. Some exactly. had been Nepali 20 years previous. But, um, they, but they, they were, they were sent back to Nepal and were housed in these camps. And Nepal is not a very, you know, wealthy country. So it wasn't that, you know, there was so much for them to return to necessarily. Mm. But they were being fed by the UN. And the UN, I think, held out hope that uh, they were going to be rehoused in Bhutan, that somehow they'd come to an agreement. But Bhutan was, no, it's still, not happening. And still no sign of that. So eventually they just decided they had to look at other countries to try to rehouse them. There have been talks that have been going on for since, you know, since 1990, basically, uh, that have sort of not really gone anywhere, uh, which is why eventually the U.S. and other countries sort of yeah. stepped in in the, in the mid 90s to say, listen, we're just going to take these people out of here uh, because, yeah, up to some of them have spent like up to up to 10, 15 years in in refugee camps, just kind of oh, in limbo geez. Because the Nepalese government did not want to accept them, and neither did the the Bhutanese government, so they didn't really have yeah. anywhere to go. Just kind of stuck in a refugee camp for you know years on end. I even noticed when looking at YouTube videos to, to research this, kind of finding documentaries, every comment section is full of you know Lochampa people and Bhutanese people fighting. Yeah, you know, a Bhutanese person goes, "Our country yeah. is so great," and someone goes, "Hey, what do you know about yeah. how great it is? You kicked us all out." And like this is. It's, you know, it's still ongoing, open sore. Uh, there's a very good New York Times article called Bhutan is no Shangri-La that we'll, we'll give a link to. But that's a, an account by one of these refugees of their of their life. There's also a great um, documentary which is available on YouTube from Al Jazeera called Bhutan's mm. Forgotten People. And I think it's a three-part series. Uh, so it's sort of three parts of half an hour each. So if you really want to dive into this whole uh, mess, that's a, that's a good way to do it kind of discussing like the plight of these refugees and kind of following some of them in you know into resettlement in the US and other countries and like sort of diving deep into the how the whole situation and came about but yeah it's 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 still very much an ongoing The reason thing. we don't know we don't hear much about this is that the reason Bhutan is most famous internationally is another result of this census which was the concept of gross national happiness uh the fourth the fourth king decided that he wanted to survey how happy his people were rather than how rich they were. Because Bhutan's got a weak economy. It's a small country, poorly connected to the rest of the world. I mean, roads are a luxury. There are no trains. There's no uh, waterways that are navigable. So trading is not top of the things they're going to be doing. But half the population are subsistence farmers. About a third are below the poverty line. But he came up with this idea that maybe government policy should be trying to maximise the happiness of citizens. 
And it could be argued that this ethnic cleansing is part of that because oh, there, were, there were nine... That's depressing, Joe. I know, I know. <laughs> there, there were kind of nine thing, kind of aims of gross national happiness, like people's time use, their living standards, good governance, their psychological well-being, their culture, their health, their education, the ecology, and their community vitality. And having a unified community seems to be considered important to uh, creating a happy people. So they survey their people every couple of years and try and figure out whether they're achieving their their GNH goals. I think the uh, main thing to come out of this is is that it was a very pioneering idea. Nobody yeah, else definitely. was really doing anything like it at the time. And I think even the, the pillars that you just mentioned, like, you know, cultural vitality and whatever, I don't think they were actually necessarily a part of it at the start. No, as it's no, been they, developed they, they, they over are, a couple of years. They tried to make it more scientific in, in, yeah. in the 90s and the, the noughties. But, uh, but it now was a vague other, concept to begin with. Now loads of other countries and administrations, apparently even Seattle does a happiness index of its population. So okay. the, the important thing was that they were the first to do it. But now everybody realizes that it's actually a really important part of things because so many countries in the West uh, have issues you know, with uh, depression and mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though their GDP, which is what you know people really look at when they look at uh, the strength or you know success of a country, that's what it really looks to. But but it's definitely not everything. Yeah, and I suppose be, being a being it's a Buddhist country, no. it's possibly easier to decouple happiness from material goods. Well, especially when you're very very poor. I mm. mean, there ain't no there ain't no point looking at the GDP. <laughs> that ain't going nowhere. That is staying right down there. Um, all right, I think this is a, another time to take a quick, quick break. Uh, but yeah, we will be back talking a little bit more about gross national happiness and uh, modern Bhutan in just a second. So, yeah, we have in 2006, another, uh, the, the current Dragon King uh, takes the throne. The fourth Dragon King abdicates, uh, passing on the throne to his son. To He essentially wanted his son to oversee uh, Bhutan's transition into democracy. And he sort of thought that he would rather him have some actual experience in doing this uh, rather than kind of for the whole thing to be set up for him and then for him to be thrust mm. into power. Uh, so, yeah, the fifth dragon king, Yingmei Kesar Namyel Wangchuk, he, he takes the throne in 2006. And in 2008, the first election is held. And the pro-monarchy Bhutan Peace and Prosperity Party, which is a great name for a party. How can you not, not vote <laughs> for those guys? Uh, they win a majority, 45 out of 47 seats. I think they're still the, uh, the ruling party in Bhutan they, right they, now. They lost the second election. Did they lose the second but, um, election? Okay. But there was, there was a peaceful <laughs> transition to power. Okay. Uh, but t- two things I really like about their transition to democracy. One, they didn't want to do it. The people didn't oh, want to yeah. do it. It was the king's idea. And the people were kind of not that keen on it. Um, because they associated it with kind of, you know, unrest with India and, and China's and, problems. Yeah. With political violence and, I mean, j- during the ethnic cleansing, there was a political party representing the Lokshampa people who, who agitated and had riots and they were locked up. So they kind of saw politics 
Bhutanese people weren't convinced about politics. Most of them are farmers living <laughs> politics, out Politics, none of that, thank you. <laughs> they, we they will have li- no They politics. like the king and they like the order of that. So the king actually walked, the, the previous king walked around the country and this, in the 90s. This is great. This demonstrates people, exactly how small this country is, that the king literally <laughs> walked around and just spoke to everybody and said, here's well, what this I'm going to do. This is why we need democracy. Here's what's happening. Um, from, literally from, he convinced the, them. You know, from his mouth. Like, yeah. you know, it's great. So he had to convince them to take his power, which is bizarre. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that they had fake elections before the elections to give everyone a chance to have a go. Huh. That's true. Yeah. They kind of organized like rehearsal like, elections to kind of go, here's where you go to vote. And this is, this is what you're supposed to do. And this is what you, you know, these are your options. And wow. uh, I think they even had like mock parties at the time. Yeah, yeah, like, they were just called like I think they were called like Druk Red, Druk Yellow, and Druk Green. And yellow One, uh, I think. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Yellow One. Go yellow. yellow being the color of the monarchy. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, now that that kind of brings us up to sort of present day, I guess. Uh, oh, one other mm. thing is that the the fourth king or the fifth king, sorry, uh, who is still ruling today in 2011, got married uh, to a, a very oh. very lovely young lady called Jetson Pema. Uh, who became the queen, and it was Bhutan's largest ever media event. There was a lot of uh, a lot of media coverage. It, it kind of made headlines around the world. They're a very very photogenic couple, and yeah, that's that's yeah. that's how things stand today. So have, have they given up on polygamy? It seems like in the past everyone I saw had it mentioned. Wives, but I don't know if they're still doing it. It's hard to tell. Yeah, well, it's the, the, their country. You know. If they are, they're they're keeping it very quiet. Um, he's young. Given given time. Yeah. Given time. Uh, so, like, a few things about modern-day Bhutan, just to zip through. Um, in 1999, they lifted a ban on TV and the internet. Yeah. So it was, I think, the last country in the world to get TV. Yes, it was. Which is mad. I, I heard an interview uh, with the guy who was in charge of introducing TV, and TV was introduced 25 minutes late. Yes, <laughs> yeah, because they didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's, there's great um, podcasts and documentaries out there about this and articles. Um, the Guardian has an article about how, like you know, it led to an increase in crime because everyone wants to do drugs like rappers now. But I, I feel like it's a little alarmist. Um, it's definitely changing Bhutanese society. Like kids are now being a bit more Western. Uh, most people speak English because the education system. Uh, so it is an interesting case study, though, as to, as to kind of, you know, it came at a point where, you know, it was almost like a like a control study where you can kind of go, yeah, what, what's yeah, the yeah, effect yeah. going to be the, when we introduce uh, television to these people? Like, how is it going to change society so it's, it's it's pretty interesting a lot of the results that have come out of that so some, mm. something i heard about the tv which was it really resonated with me because I, I used to live in japan uh that people felt that tv was a very unifying thing because it taught them about their own country but not just the country but also the the small regions and variations and the villages and the towns and and in japan uh everybody knows about pretty much every city because they're just watching the same old tv uh, from the national broadcaster, and they just do all these profiles of towns all the time. So everybody knows these weird products that come out of tiny villages in the back ends of Japan. And apparently, it's a similar thing in 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 uh, Bhutan that they they just learn a lot about their own country from using uh, using TV as one of these kind of important unifying totems that the the Bhutanese have always have always wanted to have. But they no longer walk four hours to visit their cousin, which is one of the things people lament in newspaper letters. But, you know, such is life. It's definitely, Bhutan's changing. It's modernising. Mm. Uh, and some people will blame that on TV and the internet. But you also have reincarnated lamas 
on Facebook preaching. So, which is crazy. Why, like, why, why not? Um, it's also one of the uh, greenest countries in the world, like mm. uh, literally and figuratively, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but by by constitution, sixty percent of the country must be covered in forest. Yes, and uh, it's currently seventy two percent. And they're they're ahead of that. And yeah. wow, uh, is actually a carbon sink, which I thought was very interesting. It actually absorbs more carbon than it produces. Uh, I, I heard three times it, it it absorbs three times the amount of carbon it produces. Yeah. Four million nuts. tons every year of of carbon is absorbed into Bhutan, into its trees, Oof. which are great. That's really cool. And yeah, it's. Uh, They've even embraced uh, things like electric cars, for example. One tenth of the cars in Bhutan mm. are electric and uh, hydro. They, they'd have to import petrol, exactly, because the, their main electricity source is hydroelectricity, exactly. which hydroelectric they produce power, tons yeah, of from the like from waterfalls and that sort of stuff because it's so mountainous. Is uh, its biggest export, and they sell it to Bangladesh and India. Yeah. Uh, that's I think it's like up to forty percent of their uh, GDP is. Mm. from the sale of hydroelectric power which they don't re- need very which much of which is nice yeah uh, uh, the, the, and then they also have they sell a lot of wood um, the, the current king loves planting trees I think for his birthday or for his wedding they celebrate it by like every citizen planting a tree which is pretty effective. nice yeah. very nice um, what else smoking is illegal in the country Owning tobacco, just not allowed. Yeah, uh, but they do have this thing. It's a, a, a beetle nuts, which are popular in, in many countries oh, yeah. in Asia, where yeah. it's it's super. It's the the effect is like super caffeine, but it also gives you super mouth cancer. Uh, so it's actually right. a really bad thing. But apparently, uh, they eat a lot of uh, beetle nuts in there in the morning. That's a big thing for them. It's kind of like chewing oh. tobacco. That's kind of the level. Oh well. All right. Um, the diet is largely rice and chilies. Red rice. The local red rice, rice is red. Yeah. Um, Which grows at higher altitudes. And uh, uh, you can put your own photo on stamps, I saw. Oh, oh wow. That's, nice. that's, that's pretty interesting. And they feed cannabis to pigs. <laughs> uh, it makes them, uh, it gives them the Happy. munchies and it fattens them up, apparently. Oh, that's quite clever. Um, there's a cool thing that dairy is a big deal because they have lots of yaks and cows. But I said earlier there's Swiss links to Bhutan. Uh, some guy called Fritz Mauer went over there in the 60s and built a Swiss-style cheese factory and hmm. and brewery. And uh, so they have, like, Emmental-esque wow. um, cheese now, which is, if I ever visit, I'm going to check that That's, out because that it's just such yeah. a juxtaposition. Like, But, you know, you look at the environment, you look at the, the appearance of the place, it's not, not that different. It's just really, really far away from Switzerland. Um, um, can, can I do sports? Just gonna, yeah. I'm just going to okay. mention that uh, tourism, we did touch on it before, I think. Uh, 19, I think it was mm. 1971 was the first time when uh, Bhutan opened itself up to tourism. And tourists are now charged, uh, it's, it's quite interesting actually, they're, they're charged 250 US dollars a day to visit. Uh, huh. That covers your hotel fare, I think, like your hotel fee, and also mm-hmm. uh, gives you a local guide who will accompany you around for as many days as you stay in Bhutan, but... And make sure you don't wreck everything. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Almost like North Korea, I think. I know a couple of people who visited North Korea, and it's it's kind of a similar thing where a group will, like, arrange your, you know, your itinerary and your hotel and all that sort of stuff for a daily fee. Um, sure, but you're, you're, not, you're not brought away from the mass, you know, prison islands. Like, it's, exactly. It's a little bit different. Exactly. Uh, a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but no, they, they've, looked at, they've looked at India and how tourism is kind of... 
had a bad effect. Mass tourism has had a bad effect on, on India, by their opinion. So they want kind of high-end tourists who are just there to appreciate their culture and not ruin it and cut down the trees and desecrate their holy sites. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, the, the highest the highest unclimbed mountain in the world, Gangkar Puensum, is in Bhutan and oh, it's yeah. pretty much unclimbed because will remain unclimbed. high mountains are holy. Yeah. It's, I, I yeah, was just sitting gonna... here thinking, man, I would love to go to Bhutan and just desecrate their holy sites. It just says a lot about me as a Westerner. <laughs> that's what. I, that's all I was thinking of, rubbing that's my Mr. Burns hands in glee. Yeah, excellent. Um, uh, um, so, so sports. Sports. Uh, sports, yes. Okay, so they started playing football officially, the Bhutanese team, in 1982 with a 3-1 loss to Nepal. Um Nobody recorded who scored the goals, so nobody knows who scored Bhutan's first goal. Um, so then they just kind of like flat- it's probably called Jigme. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, then they had a game uh, on the fourteenth of the second two thousand. They incurred a twenty nil loss to Kuwait. Ooh, that's rough. Uh, a country those had, giants of the. I think the they're even smaller world. than than Bhutan, Kuwait, and they beat them twenty nil. Not really. Known um, as a football and it was actually power, really. It was a world record at the time. Oh. Uh, it was a world record hammering, and one of the uh, the veterans from that team actually went on to to, to train the team. Uh, to, I think today actually he's, he's the head coach. But it, why would you let that guy train your team? Well, he's he's still their most experienced football guy. Um, in that game, there was two red cards, four penalties, and seven Q80 players scored, uh, including Bashar Abdullah, who scored eight. Um, hmm. So anyway, the, there was this game called The Other Final, and it was, it was kind of a PR exercise a little bit. Bhutan at the time, I think, was either the, the last or the second last ranked team in the FIFA rankings, in the international soccer rankings. And they played Montserrat, who were... They were the, the last and second last teams playing each other at the same time as, as the World Cup final. Um, and the whole thing was dreamed up by these Dutch PR guys, I think, who were, who were a little bit peed off that uh, Holland had been, had been kicked out. Um, so anyway, uh, Bhutan won this game uh, 4-0 to be not the worst team in the world. Yeah. And it was their... It was, <laughs> so it was their first victory, but looking at it, apparently Montserrat were, were keen to distract the world from a huge volcanic eruption that was happening yeah, on the island. Yeah. That was the only no, reason Mons- they played. Montserrat's had some stuff going on. We should look at that yeah. soon. We should, we should, we should do Montserrat at some point, yeah. Um, hmm. But yeah, but, um, we are we are pretty pretty much over time now. So, is there anything you guys want to mention before we wrap two, up? Two things: uh, national sport is archery, um, and they're not super good at it in, on an international setting. But it's because it's their own style of archery. It's not they Olympic have style. different rules. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it includes a lot of verbal jousting, which I've read uh, what they're saying. It's kind of lame, actually. But a lot of dancing. They do a lot of dancing in between each each shot. And apparently the, the archery meetings last for days because the whole thing goes on so long. And also very quickly, just a list of... of the, uh, Bhutan is a huge center of biodiversity in the world. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, of course. And they have insane uh, types of animals and animals that like I had no idea were in this area of the world, including the Ganges River dolphin, the Bengal tiger, sl- sloth bear, the red panda... The hog badger, Indian rhino, pygmy hog, the Rhinos? pangolin, which is an arm, armadillo anteater looking yeah. thing. Uh, they're, so, they're uh, so great. 
the Asian elephant, the slow loris, the black giant squirrel, the Himalayan field rat, and the golden langur, which is this mad monkey. Uh, I would totally recommend looking up the golden langur. Uh, that's that was that was most of what I had. That that's that's pretty cool. And also the yeti. And the, and the yeti. Yeah. And the yeti. They're, they're, they they've got yeti. They like I don't know. They don't have yetis, but like they they tell stories about yetis. Just you know, if you're looking to go yeti hunting and have two hundred fifty dollars a day to spend, maybe check this place yeah. out. Seems like a bit of a waste of your time in Bhutan, if I'm honest. <laughs> Especially when there's so many, uh, you know, uh, national monuments to desecrate. Exactly. Why wouldn't you just go and do that? <laughs> Leave their phalluses alone, Mark. <laughs> oh. All right. I think that's it for this week's episode. Uh, all right. So, yeah, you can find more of a, uh, more of our episodes on 80dayspodcast.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, on 80 Days Podcast on Facebook or at 80 Days Podcast on Twitter. This week, we also have to give a very special shout out to Mimi Lundahl, Connor McGarry and Kevin Byrne, who correctly identified the outline of Bhutan on our Facebook page. Mark, do you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, on Twitter at MarkBoyle86. And I've also got a blog called The Toner of Leak. And Joe? And you can read some of my ramblings on timetoburn.com, where burn is spelled like my surname. <laughs> you can find me at, at the Luke J. Kelly. Uh, on Twitter and you can find me at LukeJKelly.com and uh, yeah that's it uh, we would really appreciate if you've listened this far to uh, give us a give us a shout out on iTunes give us a rating give us an email let us know you're listening we appreciate that and uh, uh, strap a message around the neck of a vulture uh, that'll get to us 18 days from now <laughs> uh, yeah that's our episode so uh, thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you guys next time Bye-bye. bye bye King Five, what's he called again? Yep. Jigme something Kaiser Singye. Jigme Kaiser Namiel Wang. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs>